English 325. Uh, the second day of the coquette, a wonderful little novel. I hope you guys feel the same. Some of the language is difficult, right? Some of the kind of um, just at the bare bones level of plot and what's happening can be kind of a little confusing, but a really fascinating novel. Um, if you have not listened in to Monday's class yet, I highly, highly suggest that you do so. It's gonna be really, really hard to understand the novel in its entirety without kind of like starting with what we talked about on Monday, which is like going over what the seduction plot is, going over the epistolary novel, and going over like Eliza as a character at the beginning of the text and what her circumstances and situation um, is. So any just kind of like broad framing questions about the novel before we go into the guiding questions? Anything I can help you with? Okay, so let's start it up. I'm gonna share my screen. You can uh, tell me that, um, that you see it when it comes up. Give me a thumbs up or something. Yeah? Cool. Um, okay, everybody can see it here well enough? Good? Yeah. Um, okay, so let's start. Uh, the first thing that I actually ask you guys is just simply because like the there's some difficulty or kind of um, it's, it's sometimes hard to exactly figure out what's happening in the book, right? Because there's a bunch of different characters all writing different letters and things like this. I just simply asked you to kind of uh, think through what was actually occurring in this portion of the novel. And there's no real question here. I just want to go through like what we read and, and where it leaves us, right? So at the beginning of what we read for today, Eliza decides to listen to people like Lucy Freeman and her good friends who are telling her, girl, Sanford is bad for you, right? She decides to start listening to her friends and she decides to start avoiding Sanford. But at the same time, she's not totally into Boyer either. And why is she not totally into Boyer? We talked about this a little bit on Monday, but why is um, Eliza not totally into Boyer? What doesn't he give her? Oops, sorry. What doesn't Boyer provide? The thrill, yeah, Allie, I just got into that chat. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? The idea here is that Boyer is kind of the steady, boring presence. He's the good guy, but he doesn't like spend a bunch of money on her and take her to parties. And he's just the guy who's gonna give her a stable, comfortable existence but not give her the amusements that she kind of desires at this point in her life, okay? So that's why she's not totally into Boyer, even though she has decided at this point to kind of, to, to, to get rid of Sanford. So a little bit later, a really important scene when Eliza sees her mother, we're gonna go into this one. Mrs. Richmond has a child and Lucy gets married. Why is that important? Um, why, why does having a child and getting married, why is that important for the other female characters in the text? Like, what does that represent or demonstrate about women's lives or identities in this novel? Having a child or getting married? They're like doing what's expected of them, they're like their domestic duties and like these big, like, um, like, parts of their lives are happening, whereas Eliza's still kind of like 
going back and forth between Boyer and Stanford. Yeah, great. Perfect, Roisin, right? So when you have a child or when you get married in this time period, you're basically kind of like doing precisely what is being expected of you. You're keeping within that compass to use that idea that we talked about on Monday. That's a really nice kind of framing idea for, for what we mean when we say the expectations of young women in early America. So you'll notice too, and this is not a coincidence, right? That when, as Roisin tells us, Mrs. Richmond and Lucy begin to kind of like further involve themselves in the appropriate expectations for women, you'll notice that like they fall off the map in terms of the novel, right? Like this is probably not something that you were focusing on, but it's really interesting to note that when Mrs. Richmond has a child and Lucy Freeman gets married, like they don't really have very much more time for being part of the book at all. And in fact, a whole nother friend of Eliza's comes to the fore and begins to be the friend that Eliza writes a bunch of letters to. And it just so happens that that friend, Julia Grandy, is, a, is another person who's unattached and hasn't kind of like been fully involved in the expectations of what a young woman should do in early America yet. So it's almost as if like when Richmond and Lucy begin to kind of like accept and align themselves with those expectations, it's like they fall away from the book, right? They're no longer part of the plot, which is an interesting thing to think about. For the most part, they're in here, but not as much. Okay, so as we continue kind of reading on, Eliza doesn't know, you know exactly what to do. She hasn't kind of committed herself to Boyer. And at that point, Boyer expresses concern. He's like, well, do I really wanna be with you if you kind of won't commit to me? That kind of thing. And then we have the garden scene, which is a really important scene for the novel for a lot of reasons. It's like the catalytic action for the second half of the text. It, what, it's what makes everything occur later in the book. But another reason why it's important is that it provides us with like different points of view on this scene from different letter writers. And it shows us that like the epistolary form, right? The form of the novel in letters what it reveals is that every letter that we get, it's just kind of a small, mediated, narrow perspective on the action. So from Boyer's perspective, we, we get Boyer kind of um, glimpsing Eliza and Sanford alone in the garden, and Boyer thinks about that in a particular way, which we'll get to, right? He thinks something's afoot. So Boyer leaves Eliza, and he writes her a letter that warns her about what she's doing, basically takes her to task for um, associating with Sanford. Boyer thinks that Eliza and Sanford are getting together behind his back to kind of like consummate their relationship or something, or to kind of devote themselves to one another. Of course, as we know from reading all of the different perspectives, what Eliza is actually doing in that garden scene is under number seven here on the slide, is that what Eliza is doing actually in that garden scene is she's decided to marry Boyer and she's kind of going to break the news to Sanford. But before she has an opportunity to do that, Boyer um, kind of creeps up on them and the whole scene is ruined. And when Eliza realizes that Boyer is going to leave her and that he feels betrayed, she faints. Um, and then we have basically a break in time, right? We have a kind of chronological break. Harley, is that a hand? I'm sorry. Okay. Um, still phantom hands even here on Zoom. We have a kind of chronological break here. Eliza hasn't heard from Sanford in a year. She realizes she's made a mistake and she actually at this point tries to win back Boyer, but she fails. Boyer has moved on. Um, 
Sanford uh, moves back home, he gets married, and in the ultimate dick move, he introduces his wife to Eliza. Um, a really dick move on Sanford's part. So any questions about any of what has happened and what we read for today? Okay, I'd just like to frame that for everybody just to kind of give us a sense of where we've been and where we're going. But the real point here is to kind of think through the guiding questions. So the first one I asked you as we move to the next slide is to consider how Eliza and Lucy talk about novels and plays. Does anybody um, have a chance already to listen in to Monday's podcast or maybe if you were here too, but if you had a chance to listen in already to Monday's podcast, can anybody rehearse for me the status of novels and fiction in early America for young women? Does anybody um, recall the status of fiction or novels for young women in early America? Good, bad, indifferent? Uh I wrote a note that it was dangerous for them because their reading of not being a proper woman. Good, yeah, precisely, right? So the idea is that, um, that was Olivia, right? Yeah, thanks, Olivia. That idea goes, um, it, it's really operative here. How about Ellie, you wanna add on to that? Yeah, also that it like allowed them to have their own thoughts, which kind of went against like typical ways they were supposed to be thinking. Good, right? So that's just a kind of really nice reinforcement or supplement to what Olivia said, right? So Olivia says um, novels, fiction in general, uh, were considered dangerous for young women in the time period. And Ali adds that one of the reasons why they were kind of considered dangerous is that they allowed young women to inhabit or imagine different worlds than their own. And of course, this is dangerous, this is a threat, because young women should be principally focused and fixated on what in this time period? Not unlike the kind of fanciful imaginings of a fictional world, but on what in particular? Like basically the home, right? Domestic affairs, like just kind of um, ordinary daily day-to-day -day concerns, not kind of fanciful musings or imaginings. So fiction and novels are kind of understood as dangerous. So with that in mind, let's think through how Eliza and Lucy talk about novels and plays. Okay, so the first quote here is from Lucy to Eliza. She says, your truly romantic letter came safe to hand. Indeed, my dear, it would make a very pretty figure in a novel, a bleeding heart, slighted love, and all the et ceteras of romance enter into the composition. So this is Lucy saying this to Eliza. What is Lucy saying? Knowing what we know about the status of novels or fiction or romance in early America, knowing what we know, what kind of judgment is Lucy making about Eliza here? If Eliza's life makes a very pretty picture in a novel, is Lucy saying that Eliza's experiences are positive or negative and why? Wouldn't they be negative because instead of her doing like the stuff that she's supposed to be doing, she's like 
like kind of in like this like love issue instead of like actually doing the work that she's supposed to yeah right i think what we're meant to understand from lucy's statement here is that lucy even though on the surface it kind of reads as neutral when lucy describes eliza's life and her experiences as novelistic or as dramatic right or as romantic what she's saying is that like these are kind of bad experiences these are experiences that you shouldn't be having right we're meant to understand that what's occurred to Eliza is actually negative, right? Not adhering to the conventional notions of womanhood, right? Because if your life as a young woman in early America, if your life is like a novel, that means that you are straying far beyond the expectations for your life. You are straying far outside of that compass, right? So we, like as 21st century readers and as 21st century people, like maybe in some respects, we would want to live a life as if it was in a novel, full of adventure and love, romance, intrigue. Yeah, it'd be awesome to like have your pick between two romantic suitors and play them off one another and figure out who's best for you and live an independent and free life. Absolutely, right? All of these things from a 21st century perspective, we kind of consider to be positives. But from the 18th century perspective, from Lucy's perspective, the idea that Eliza's life would make a pretty figure in a novel means that Eliza is living her life wrong, right? She's living her life wrong. And also, the second thing to say there is like, think about the fact that Eliza is writing this letter to Lucy and she's almost writing the letter as if she was a figure herself in a novel. That's what Lucy is saying, right? She's saying that Eliza's life and Eliza's experiences are almost as if they are taking place in a novel. That is a bad thing, right? Eliza's creating a novel out of her life. That's a really bad thing to be doing from the perspective of somebody like Lucy, who is a kind of traditional or conventional young woman in early America. Okay, so when Lucy says this, it's not um, praise. It's not a positive thing. It's a negative thing for her to say this. Questions on that? So the next quote then is um, Eliza asking Lucy to send me some new books, not such, however, as will require much attention. Let them be plays or novels or anything else that will amuse and extort a smile. So knowing what we know, again, about the status of plays and novels in early America, especially for young women, what are we meant to think of Eliza here? Could it be like books that, um, like since it's not, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Like it's not like books or plays that's gonna take away from what she's supposed to be doing in her house or like, like her job is like to like fulfill everything. So instead of it being like a, like a romance novel or like whatever, it's just like stuff she doesn't really have to pay attention to because she has other things to like do instead that are more important. Well, I, I mean, 
you're you're rehearsing the kind of traditional view. The idea here that like, that like the books that Eliza should be reading are books that don't take her away from her domestic duties. That's the traditional view. But Eliza, in fact, wants novels and plays. She wants things that will amuse her. She wants things that will just make her smile. She doesn't want things that like reinforce the conventions of her life or that require much attention. So if we understand that what Eliza is asking for is novels or plays, things that will simply amuse her, like the gossipy attractions that Judith Sarge and Murray talked about last week. What are we meant to think about Eliza here? So instead of like what I said, wouldn't it be that she wants? So like go against what she's supposed to be doing. I kind of like read that wrong. That's why I was kind of confused, but she wants to like stray away from what she's like the whole housework kind of thing. Yeah, no, that's precisely it. Right? I'm glad to that kind of like, to, to like narrate that process of coming to understand the nature of the passage, because that's just exactly why we put these things up and talk about them, right? Yeah, but exactly as you said, right? The idea here is that Eliza's desire for novels and plays, her desire for trifling things to read is indicative of how she's basically not taking her life seriously. She's just looking for distractions. She's not trying to stay within that compass of expected behavior. She wants to just amuse herself or have a smile through what she's reading, okay? So again, this description of Eliza, her desire to get novels or plays is meant to, from the perspective of an 18th century reader, it's meant to have us understand that Eliza is reading the wrong things. She's a bad reader, right? Not only is she reading the wrong things, but she's reading things incorrectly as well, because you shouldn't be reading for amusement or for a smile. Okay. So these things should be pointing us toward the idea that Eliza is on the wrong path. Okay. Just to kind of reinforce this point, I want to kind of think through the next following passages as a kind of means of supplementing or reinforcing the points that we're making. So Lucy in this next passage is talking about the play Romeo and Juliet, and she criticizes it. I wanna talk through the nature of her criticism of this play. She's talking about the Shakespeare play, Romeo and Juliet. It was Romeo and Juliet, distressing enough to sensibility this. Are there not real woes, if not in our own families, at least among our own friends and neighbors, sufficient to exercise our sympathy and pity without introducing fictitious ones into our very diversions? How can that be a diversion which racks the soul with grief, even though that grief be imaginary? The introduction of a funeral solemnity upon the stage is shocking indeed. So let's dig into this language, it's kind of difficult. What's the nature of her criticism of plays. Why does Lucy think that we shouldn't be watching Romeo and Juliet? She feels like there's like people already deal with enough like shit in their own lives that they don't need to be adding like fictional like problems on top of their own things. Yeah, ain't that the truth, man? We all got enough shit to deal with. Right, so why watch a Shakespeare play that's just gonna make us more sad? And even still, it's gonna make us more sad and it's gonna do that through a fictional portrayal, 
right? What Lucy is saying to go off of Rashid's point is like, we have enough to deal with in our own lives in reality, right? So why would we go to the theater to make ourselves feel even worse? Again, this is profoundly um, contradictory to how we think about literature from a 21st century perspective, because like our desire to read literature from a 21st century perspective is because we want to feel things. Oftentimes we want to feel things that we don't feel ourselves in our real lives. Like literature transports us emotionally or otherwise into new realms of feeling. We love that. Like that's one of the reasons why we're drawn to books. But in the 18th century for a young woman, that is a dangerous idea, right? It's dangerous to go to Romeo and Juliet because it makes us feel false feelings, right? The feelings that we're having when we watch a Shakespeare play are not true and they're not real. And so they're dangerous, right? Because they're transporting us away from the real feelings that we're having in our own lives. Okay, does that make sense? False feelings taking us away from the reality of our everyday lives and the feelings we have as a result of those realities. That's a danger, that's a threat, right? It's the same type of threat as we talked about earlier, the idea that literature kind of puts us into a new world, gives us a new perspective, allows us to have a kind of new experience, right? All of those things are bad from the 18th century perspective. All those things are terrible and threatening, right? Because they take young women away from their proper domestic roles. Okay, so in general then like plays and novels are bad because they create false feelings. That's something to keep in mind, this idea of feelings and as we kind of continue through the guiding questions for today, the idea of who has feelings and when are they appropriate. So kind of put a pin in that and we'll talk about it a little bit more in a minute. Um, Eliza says near the end of what we read for today, I hope the tragic comedy in which I have acted so conspicuous a part will come to a happy end. So how in this passage is Eliza perceiving her life? The way she's describing her life, how is she perceiving the nature of her life and her part in it? She's describing her life as, quote, a tragic comedy. A tragic comedy is a genre of literature. So she says that her life is a type of literature. And not only that, she's saying that she is acting in that literature. She's hoping that it will come to a happy end. So what's wrong again with how Eliza is describing her life? in this passage. What's the problem here? Remember, literature is threatening, it's dangerous to be perceiving of your experiences as if they are part of a novel is the wrong way to be perceiving of your life. So what is Eliza showing us in this passage?
yeah, Emma says she is living her life through literature, which isn't supposed to be happening um, by women. Um, and yeah, it is. This is how she's viewing her life and it makes her happy. Emma, you're right. But like in the general kind of scheme of things in society, the idea, as you say, that she's living life through literature or thinking of her life as if it's part of a tragic comedy, as if it's part of a kind of fictitious narrative, that's a problem, right? The idea that she's thinking of her life as being acted through a piece of literature or a piece of fiction suggests to us that she is doing something wrong, right? She's reading the wrong things. She's acting in her life in the wrong way because she is thinking of her life as if it's part of a fictional world, not the world that she actually inhabits, which is a world that would tell her to settle down and stay in the compass and marry Boyer. And I asked a good question. Doesn't Eliza believe that if she continues to act in this way, that something good will come to her, even though society thinks it's wrong? Absolutely. This is the central conflict of the novel, is that Eliza fervently and like consciously desires that her life will end up happy through the choices she's making. The conflict of the novel is whether that's actually going to be true or whether society is going to basically dominate her and overcome her desire to transcend those constraints. Yeah, Rasheen, it's the same idea here in the chat, right? The idea that tragic comedies usually end up with a happy ending, right? So she knows her life is like a piece of literature with tragedy, but she's still hoping that at the end of it, something good will come to pass. Absolutely, right? This is right in line with what Emma was saying as well. The idea here is that Eliza perceives her life in these terms and because she's reading the wrong things and because she's a bad reader, she thinks that something good is going to happen to her. And we fervently want something good to happen to her. Like Eliza is the heroine here. She's like the 21st century avatar, right? She's the person who like wants to live her life independent and free. She doesn't want to settle down immediately. She just wants to have a little bit of fun. And from a 21st century perspective, we're like, hey, what's the harm? That's awesome. That's great. Have a date with Boyer, have a date with Sanford, hang out with Lucy, don't tie herself down, right? We think from a 21st century perspective that like those types of actions could still lead to a happy ending as Roisin and Emma are telling us. But the central conflict of the novel is that that belief that Eliza has, that we share with her, is a belief that society in the 18th century fervently denies to her, right? And, you know, by the end, we'll see where she comes out. Spoiler alert, or if you listened in on Monday, you already know this, like, shit does not end well for Eliza, right? It's not a happy ending for her, right? So, like, her perception of her life as a novel is a misinterpretation, right? It's, it's a, something she desires, but it's not going to come to pass. And those kind of comments, Emma and Roisin in the chat, those comments kind of segue us really nicely into this last passage on this um, slide where I think it's Mrs. Richmond who is talking about Eliza and her inability to see Sanford for who he is, 
who is a, like a terrible guy who's trying to take advantage of her. And Mrs. Richmond says, I'm astonished that Eliza's penetrating eye has not long since read his vices, his sins, in his very countenance, in his face. So what is Mrs. Richmond saying here? She's saying that she is astonished, she's surprised that Eliza Wharton cannot properly read Sanford's face. She cannot properly see that Sanford is out to get her and that he's going to be a bad influence on her, that, she's, that he is trying to take advantage of and exploit her. The question then becomes, why can't Eliza see that? Why is Eliza a bad reader? This just kind of like wraps in a bow the discussion we've had in this slide. Why can't Eliza perceive of Sanford as the wrong person for her? Why can't Eliza see Sanford's bad intentions? Is it because of like what she reads? Yeah, say more, say more. Oh, I don't know, like, she is, like, caught up in, like, the fairy tale type of things, like, not the traditional way of life at this time, and because she's so into what she reads, she kind of just, like, looks past it. Yeah, that's exactly right, Olivia. That's precisely it, is that Eliza is a bad reader of people and of her life experiences because she reads the wrong things. She thinks that there is a life out there for her to live where like somebody like Sanford is going to be good for her. And the reason why she thinks that is she's been led astray by the novels that she reads, right? She is a bad reader of other people and their intentions because she reads the wrong things. Okay, so we can really think about Eliza's character as mapping quite explicitly onto the types of books she reads and the type of books that she likes to surround herself with, right? She doesn't know how to accurately perceive the experiences that are happening to her because she thinks that she's living a life that takes place in a novel when in fact, the novel tells us she's not. Right? Fairy tale is a really good way of putting it, Olivia. Right? She thinks she's living the life of a fairy tale, but society is actually telling her, Lucy and Mrs. Richmond and Julia Granby and everybody in her life, everybody is actually telling her, no, Sanford is bad for you and he's going to lead to your ruin. She can't see that. She can't read his vices on his face because she sees in Sanford amusements, flattery, money, independence, um, potentially like sexual attraction, even though like because of the time period in which this is written, that's kind of something that's implicit, right? Sanford is sexier than Boyer, but that's really not like stated explicitly in the text. Right, as I mentioned on Monday that Sanford is the guy with like the black leather motorcycle jacket with the zipper that's on the bias, right? He's the kind of like, he's the bad boy and Eliza reads novels that tells her that the bad boy can come good and that you can actually have a good life with the bad boy. But 18th century society tells us that that's not the case. Okay, any other thoughts on this slide, how they talk about novels and plays? Again, we're meant to understand that Eliza is misperceiving her experiences and the intentions of those around her because 
she is thinking of her life as if it is a novel, right? And she's, mis she's reading the wrong things. And because she's reading the wrong things, she is also reading the people around her and her experiences in the wrong way. Cool. Yeah. I think that's one of the possible questions on the midterm. So I just want to kind of hit that home and, and make sure that everybody knows exactly what we're talking about here. That's why I spend so much time on it. Okay, next quite next um, slide then. So when do characters in, their no in this novel lose their voice and what circumstances seem to precipitate, seem to create um, these moments where characters can't speak? Okay, so this first quote um, is from Eliza when she meets with her mom. I flew with ecstasy to the bosom of my mama who received me with her accustomed affection testified by the expressive tears of tenderness which stole silently down her widowed cheek. She was unable to speak. I was equally so. We therefore indulged a moment, the pleasing emotions of sympathizing sensibility. Okay, so that's one moment where characters are unable to speak. I'm just gonna read all of these and we can talk through what kind of connects them. The next one is Boyer. After the garden scene, he goes back into Eliza's home and Eliza's mom is there. And Boyer says, I traversed the parlor hastily, overwhelmed with chagrin, which is sadness and resentment. Mrs. Wharton inquired the cause. I attempted to tell her, but my tongue refused utterance. Okay. Um, and another one from Boyer. After Eliza meets him back in the parlor after the garden scene, Boyer says, I turned to Eliza and attempted to speak, but her extreme emotion softened me and I could not command my voice. What's happening in all three of these examples? Why are people unable to speak in these moments? What's happening to them? What is overcoming them? What are they overwhelmed by? Uh, they're like overwhelmed by like everyone else's or like whoever's emotion or their own emotions. Yeah, emotion. This is hardly, this is exactly right. So in the first quote, um, Eliza is overwhelmed with like happiness, right? Or love. In the second quote, Boyer is overwhelmed with sadness and resentment. In the third, this is when kind of Boyer realizes um, that, um, you know, Eliza, from his perspective, has done something wrong. And Boyer kind of tries to speak, but her emotions make him quiet, right? So in all three of these cases, what happens is when emotions are at their height, when feeling is at their height, speaking is impossible, okay? So let's keep that in mind for the next slide and talk through a couple more examples here of moments when talking, when speaking falls away. Um, this is again Boyer. This is again after the garden scene. He says, the fever of resentment and the tumult of passion began now to give place to the softer emotions of the soul. He's no longer angry, but now he feels like overwhelmed, sad, right? I found myself perfectly unmanned. I gave free scope to the sensibility of my heart and the effeminate relief of the tears materially lightened the load which oppressed me. And then Eliza, after Boyer leaves, says, when I, said that, when I saw that he was gone, 
that he had actually forsaken me, I fainted. So, like Harley is telling us, when these characters experience emotion, they lose the ability to speak. What um, thing that we've read in the past should you be reminded of here? Who that we've read in the past um, valorizes or praises um, speaking and talking to one another, having conversations, debating, learning through questions and answers. What that we've read in the past kind of gives us that perspective. Are we talking about Benjamin Franklin? Yeah. Olivia, you're so depressed by thinking about Benjamin Franklin. No, I just wasn't sure. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just Wouldn't it be like... Oh. Go ahead, Jen. Wouldn't it be like his teaching method? Like he yeah. wants everyone to discuss their opinion? Yeah, totally. It is Franklin. And more generally, it's, it is his teaching method, but it's more generally like his approach to life, which we might understand as a kind of enlightenment approach to life. The idea that like when you speak, when you talk to one another, what you are doing is having a rational discussion about an issue, right? When you have a rational discussion, when you talk, you are creating a situation or an environment where you can think through the issue at hand without emotions, right? Think back to when Franklin is describing to his fellow workers the importance of drinking water and bread instead of beer. Basically what he's saying is when I explained this to them, when I talked through my idea, he's trying to cut through all of the kind of like emotions that these men have about what they're doing, right? So for Franklin, speaking is tied explicitly to rationality and to a lack of emotion, right? In the coquette, when people can't speak, they are irrational, they are emotional, right? So we see this kind of oppositional framework in play. In this time period, in like the late 18th century, speaking, being able to talk, is equated with or connected to rational, emotionless experience, not being able to talk, right? Fainting or being quiet or being overwhelmed is related to having an excess of emotions and being irrational. Does that make sense? this framework in play. Speaking is tied to rationality. Not speaking is tied to excess emotionality. Now, from what we've just read, how does gender play into this? When Boyer says that I couldn't speak and that I found myself perfectly unmanned, and then he begins to cry and he can't talk. What happens to him in terms of gender? He's like deep, uh, what's the right word? He's demasculate. I don't know the right word. He's emasculated. Yep, that's it. 
unmanned means that like he has lost his manliness. And I mean that in every sense of the term, right? I mean that in the kind of theoretical sense that he's no longer kind of the rational thinking and thoughtful man. But I also mean that like literally unmanned, like in this moment when he's feeling so overwhelmed by emotion, like he, his penis is being lopped off. He is being unmanned, right? He has become a woman in this moment because he cannot speak, because he has been overwhelmed by emotion, right? And so if we're thinking through this framework, right, that happens in the enlightenment period where speech and rationality are contrasted to the lack of speech and emotion, we can also add onto that framework that speech and rationality are connected to or aligned with masculinity and emotion, irrationality, and a lack of speech are connected to or aligned with femininity. And so when Boyer can't speak, he feels like he has been unmanned. He feels like he has been emasculated, right? That his man parts have been taken from him in all senses of the term, right? And what I would suggest to you is this is why he is so overwhelmed that he misperceives and misunderstands what happens between Eliza and Sanford in the garden, right? Because he has lost all sense of rationality. He's lost logic and reason, and he begins to misinterpret what is happening in front of his eyes, right? So this just segues us in, in the kind of, um, because we only have about five minutes left, I wanna go through the next scene a little, a little quickly, but when Boyer comes to the garden and he sees Sanford and Eliza, he says, I found my temper rise and I told her plainly that I was thus not to be trifled with, that if her regard for me was sincere, if she was really intended to form a connection with me, she could not thus protract the time, try my patience and prefer every other pleasure to the rational interchange of affection, to the calm delights of domestic life, right? And when he sees Eliza in the garden, he says, I sought her in vain in different parts of the garden till going towards an arbor, almost concealed from her sight by surrounding shrubbery, I discovered her sitting in close conversation with Major Sanford, my blood chilled in my veins, and I stood petrified with astonishment at the disclosure of such baseness and deceit. So what does Boyer think has happened in the garden between Eliza and Sanford? When Boyer comes up on Sanford and Eliza in the garden, he misperceives, misinterprets that event. What does he think is happening? He thinks Eliza and Sanford are going behind his back and getting together without his knowledge. Yeah, precisely, right? So he misinterprets this scene. He thinks that Eliza and Sanford are getting together in this moment and figuring out how they are going to stay together. Where, whereas we know, right, because we have the kind of 360 degree view from all of the different letters that are being sent, we know that this scene is really meant to um, be the moment where Eliza tells Sanford that things are over between them, okay? 
So Boyer just completely misinterprets what's happening here. And the reason why he misinterprets what's happening here is because he loses, he loses his rationality and his control, right? He's petrified and astonished. He loses his ability to speak. And by losing his ability to speak, he becomes irrational and overwhelmed by emotion, right? That's a bad thing in this book. When you are irrational and overwhelmed by emotion, that's a bad thing to have happened to you. Because it causes you to not be able to perceive in accurate terms what's going on around you. And the reason why I bring this up is because it interfaces or connects really nicely with what's happening to Eliza throughout the course of the book as well, right? She's overcome with emotion. She's overcome with thinking through her own desires and her own wants and needs. And she derives those desires and wants and needs from the books that she's reading, right? And because she's overwhelmed by the emotion that she has, she also misperceives experiences that she's having in her life, right? So in this moment, Boyer becomes unmanned and becomes quite like Eliza, misperceiving the events that are happening to him. Um, we don't have time to go through Eliza and Sanford's accounts. Maybe we'll start with that on Friday, maybe not, I'll decide. I don't think that's one of the questions in the in the midterm, so I don't, maybe if we don't have time, I won't go into it, right? But other questions about kind of how emotions work in the novel and why we're supposed to stay away from emotions. Right, you should be thinking of Lucy's critique of Romeo and Juliet, right? It's a problem because it makes us feel feelings, right? Emotions are a problem because they make us irrational. They make us unable to speak. We want to be able to speak because when we talk, we are rational and thoughtful and calm thinking creatures. And we can accurately perceive the world around us. When we are lost in emotion, when we can no longer talk, that's when we can no longer accurately perceive our experiences in the world around us. And that's basically the fog that Eliza is living in for a portion of the novel. And again, we, from a 21st century perspective, want to see a kind of positivity in that, but from the 18th century perspective, like we're meant to understand it as something that is quite inherently uh, bad. Okay, we'll go over some things if we need to on Friday, but uh, I'll hang around here if anybody has questions for a minute, but thanks. Have a good rest of the day. Good to see you all. Bye-bye. Thank you.